Please open your Bibles to Matthew 18, verses 1 to 6. Again, that's Matthew 18, 1 to 6. For several chapters now, we have been in a section of Matthew that is has been primarily concerned with discipleship. Officially, we would say that this started back in Matthew 14, though you could almost say that it started back as early as chapter 13. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees blasphemed the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan, and this signaled to Jesus that Israel's fate was sealed. They weren't going to repent because the religious leaders weren't going to allow it. They were too stubborn. They were too hard of heart. And so starting in Matthew 13, Jesus essentially turned his focus inward to his disciples onto this next generation of witnesses that would carry his message out to the world after his death. It started with a series of parables in Matthew 13 that explained that the kingdom of heaven would not be immediate. Jesus didn't explain those parables to the crowds. Those were only for his disciples. And they prepared those disciples for the fact that they weren't going to enter into the kingdom right away. The kingdom was going to be a slow affair. There was going to be this period of time between the birth of this kingdom and its completion, its fulfillment. And although it wasn't stated explicitly, it was at least implied that the disciples were going to have a mission to perform in the meantime. They weren't going to enter into the rest of the kingdom. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit had signaled as much, and this meant that there was going to be work to do. The mission was going to have to carry on in this intermediate period between Jesus' first coming and His second, and the disciples would be the one to launch it. Now, they probably didn't realize all that just yet, but that's what Jesus told them. And it's what he was soon to make very clear to them. After Jesus prepares the disciples for this upcoming ministry with a brief mission in Galilee, which Matthew records in Matthew 10, he then withdraws with them for a period of time of intense training. The death of John the Baptist in Matthew 14 finalizes Israel's rejection. And the hostility expressed by Herod indicates to Jesus that the cross is getting nearer and nearer. And so Jesus pulls his disciples away from the crowd so that they can rest for a little while and so that he can complete some critical aspects of their training before they begin the final leg of his ministry, which of course is going to end with his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Jesus teaches them about the source of their strength in ministry when he feeds the 5,000, and walks on water. He reinforces this understanding, his understanding of sin and defilement and a conflict with the scribes and Pharisees over the washing of hands at the beginning of chapter 15. He then uses that lesson on defilement to show them who is worthy of entrance into the kingdom of heaven in an encounter with the Canaanite woman in the region of Tyre and Sidon. He follows that up with a series of events that demonstrate just how devastating legalism can be at the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. He, he shows them how legalism can infiltrate and destroy the spiritual life of a group of people if it's allowed to fester and grow. And then, of course, the big moment, the, the climax of this section, and really of the entire gospel, Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. Peter answers that he is the Christ. And understanding that his disciples have been firmly established, rooted in the faith, Jesus begins to talk about his assembly, his church. 
He not only explicitly tells the disciples for the very first time that they're going to serve as the foundation of this church, that they're going to be the ones who launch this new entity and communicate what he has taught them to the rest of the world, but he also begins to disclose for the very first time that he's going to suffer, die, and then rise again from the dead. Now that revelation is a bit too much for his disciples to handle initially. They push back. Peter argues with Jesus, but Jesus stands firm, and he tells them that not only will he suffer, but all of them will as well. Every one of his disciples will suffer. That is the path that they all must walk. At the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus then deals with this momentary insurrection among his disciples by taking the very innermost circle of them up onto this mountain where he, where he reinforces for them both his authority and his future glory in the transfiguration. And it works. Those disciples that he brought with him, they're sufficiently humble before Jesus, and they begin to ask him more questions about the kingdom of heaven. In the meantime, the disciples at the foot of the mountain are struggling to cast out a demon, and when Jesus and the inner circle arrive, he uses that as an occasion to teach his disciples about the necessity of faith. The disciples can perform the mission that Jesus has in front of them, but they can't let fear or pride or any other temptation take their eyes off the object of their faith. If you stop to think about it, that's a pretty impressive list of lessons that are essential to the life of each and every disciple. In this section of Matthew, Jesus outlines the scope and the duration of the disciples' mission. He discusses the challenges they'll face while on that mission. He even explains how they'll grow and persevere in the face of those challenges. He discusses everything from the object of their faith to the means of maintaining their faith to how to live out that faith before the world. And this last point, by the way, was highlighted in our passage last week. Jesus showed Peter that he expected his disciples to remove any stumbling block to the gospel and to even surrender their rights, if necessary, for the advancement of his kingdom. I've called this series of messages, uh, starting in Matthew 14, I've called this series of messages, Setting the Cornerstone. Because that's really what Jesus is doing here in this, in this portion of his ministry. He's pouring the foundation for his church as he invests in and trains these 12 disciples for their post-resurrection mission. Jesus, Jesus, of course, he is the cornerstone. He's the object of their faith. He's the one that will build his church and they are to keep their eyes on him. But as they do this, he's going to work through them. And after he has been raised from the dead, they're going to take that gospel message out in the world and in the process become the foundation for this massive and growing assembly of believers that Jesus calls his church. Of course, this is a pretty significant and overwhelming calling for these 12 men. I doubt that any of these run-of-the-mill Galileans would have ever thought in their wildest dreams that they would one day serve as the foundation for the Messiah's kingdom. But there they are. They have found the Christ. He has personally called them to be His disciples, and He has trained them to become the foundation of His church. So put yourself in their shoes for a second. Imagine that you're the one walking down the dirt road, traveling across the Galilean countryside. And that man in front of you, in this kind of entourage of men that's 
you know, moving down this road. That man in front of you, he's the Messiah. You know he's the Messiah. You were there when John announced him to the rest of Israel. You've seen the signs and wonders. He's the Christ. And not only that, but the reason why you're traveling with him is because he came and called you specifically. He taught, he's taught you personally. He's shown an interest in you, spent time talking to you. You've had multiple face-to-face, probably even one-on-one conversations with him. He's explained things to you. He's shown things to you that he's not shown anyone else outside of that circle of disciples. Crowds come out to greet him. And after he sends the crowds away, he takes you with him. And then not only that, but he then gives you a a measure of his authority. He equips you to perform some of the very same miracles that he performs. And then he tells you that he has chosen you so that you can serve as his special envoy at the establishment of his kingdom. Now, what effect do you think that would have on you? How do you think all of that might change you? Do you think that maybe, just maybe, that might start to go to your head a little bit? Do you think that you might start to think that you're just a little bit special? Well, that's what happens with Jesus' disciples in today's passage. And you can't necessarily blame them. I think every single one of us would start to become a little puffed up. I think we do start to get pretty proud of ourselves and over a lot less than what's happening between Jesus and the disciples. But, but that's what happens here in Matthew 18. The disciples see all this authority that Jesus has given to them. They take these declarations where he talks about how they're going to serve as the foundation of his church. And they naturally start to wonder, so which one of us is the greatest? I mean, it's, it's clear we're all pretty special, but who's the most special? Which one of us is the best, the greatest? When Jesus answers, He tells them who is the greatest. And not only that, but He tells them how to become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So let's go ahead and find out what He says. I've entitled today's message, The Christian's Guide to Greatness. That's what Jesus explains in this next lesson on discipleship. He explains to the disciples the meaning of the greatness of the ki- in, kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. And how to become great in God's eyes. And I would assume that this is something all of us want, all of us desire. So let's read the passage together, see what Jesus says. Again, it's Matthew 18, 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So the disciples have this question. They want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And to be specific, they want to know who among them is the greatest. Matthew doesn't bring this detail out exactly. Mark and Luke do. Uh, They had actually been arguing among themselves. And Mark says that Jesus had to actually ask them what they were arguing about before they reluctantly ask him this question. So understand, they they already assume that they collectively constitute the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. After all, Jesus had chosen them, he had trained them, given them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. They assumed their greatness was more or less given. What they want to know 
is which of them is the greatest? And so they asked Jesus, so who is it? Can you tell us? Who's your number one guy? Who's the most important? And you can imagine at this point that Peter has a pretty good case to make considering the kind of praise that Jesus heaped on him after his declaration of faith in chapter 16. Uh, But then again, Jesus also issued a pretty strong rebuke to Peter. He called him Satan right after that. So maybe the others think he lost that position. James and John could probably make a pretty good case in light of uh, the transfiguration, considering that they got to witness with Peter the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. But as you know, Jesus told them they couldn't mention what they saw there, so the rest of the disciples don't know about any of that. All they know is that Jesus went away with those three for a little while. They don't know the significance of it. So from their perspective, they can't necessarily see why any of them should be number two. They'd receive the same authority as Peter, James, and John, right? Didn't he say that all of them could cast mountains into the sea? That means they're all pretty substantial, aren't they? Uh, Again, I, I think you can just see how they would get into an argument over this, and you can kind of imagine the evidence that they'd present to argue their case. But there's a problem, of course, and that's that greatness doesn't work like this in the kingdom of heaven. They're vying for position, for a place of honor. They're arguing arguing about who among them is the most special in Jesus' eyes. And that's not how Jesus sees this issue. That's not how God understands greatness. And so Jesus answers their question. He shows them who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. But he offers a couple of corrections to the way that they're thinking about this whole issue. That's his next lesson on discipleship. He shows them what greatness is how it's valued in the kingdom of heaven, and he does it with two corrections on the concept of greatness. And the first correction comes in verses 2 to 3. Here he points out that humility is required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Humility is required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples want to know who's great in the kingdom of heaven, but what does that really even mean? Great can mean a lot of different things. Do they mean the most powerful, like the most advanced disciple, the the most mature? After all, Jesus was just saying that nothing is impossible for the one who has faith. Are they maybe wanting to know who among them is the most faithful, the one most equipped to perform these signs and wonders? Or do they mean great in the sense of esteem? Do they mean great in the sense of significant or important? And even then, do they mean that with reference to God or with reference to men? Now, I mean, they might say God, but let's be honest, a lot of times we're comparing ourselves to other people, aren't we? We want to know how we stack up against them. That's what we're really concerned about. Are other people impressed? Do they see how important I am? Are they in awe of me? Do they worship me? Again, we never outright say that, but in our hearts we think it, and we demonstrate that by constantly trying to impress other people, by always thinking, I wonder what that other person thinks of me. And I think if we're trying to answer this question for the disciples, then we can understand that it's the last of all these. They're just with us. That's what they're wondering about. They wonder what other people think about them. They're concerned about their greatness before other people. We see that, of course, just in the way that this question is asked. They don't ask Jesus, who is great in the kingdom of heaven? They ask, who's the greatest? It's comparative. It's not enough to be just great. They want to be the greatest, meaning that they're concerned, what they're concerned about is not personal growth for growth's sake. They're not concerned about their own maturity, how to be great in the sense of advanced, nor are they concerned primarily with what God thinks of them. Again, it's what they're 
If that's what they were concerned about, then they just say, who's great in the kingdom of heaven? They wouldn't be concerned about with comparisons to other people. They'd just be concerned about their own personal greatness in God's eyes and how to attain it. But what they're concerned about is what other people think. That's what they're interested in. That's why the question is comparative. They're not, they're not racing against themselves. They're racing against other people. That's why they ask this question like this. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And of course, this is even clearer when you take Mark and Luke into account, where we discover that the disciples were actually arguing among themselves who was the greatest. That's the whole point here. What they're concerned about is their status in relation to one another. They're not primarily concerned with personal excellence. They don't want to be great for greatness sake, to be pleasing to the Lord. What they want is to be the most important, the most advanced. They want to be the top disciple. And they want to be that in order to lord it over the other disciples. They're all okay with Jesus having first place, but they all want second. They want to be recognized as the most significant of Jesus' disciples so that the other eleven can be impressed. But unfortunately for these twelve, that's not how greatness even works in the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are forgetting this. After all, not only has Jesus already demonstrated quite explicitly that He alone is worthy of every single drop of praise and honor and glory to the three that He took with Him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, not even Moses and Elijah are to receive any kind of recognition or honor when set beside the Son. It all goes to Jesus. Jesus revealed that to the three disciples when they went up with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration. But not only has that been demonstrated to those Three, But when Jesus came back down the mountain, he demonstrated to all of his disciples with the healing of the demoniac boy that the way that they will advance God's kingdom, the way that they will become powerful, helpful even, able to do great things, the way that they will become in this sense great, it's not through their own strength or greatness, but through the power of God. In other words, when it comes to the matter of esteem in the kingdom of heaven, the disciple is nothing. They have nothing worthy of praise in and of themselves. The only things that they, in a sense, can do or be that can be considered great is given to them by God, and those gifts are given in order to reflect honor and praise back to God. So all the glory in the kingdom goes back to God. No one is to be regarded great as great in the kingdom of heaven, but God alone, because all are, in fact, needy. No one's great. All are weak. And this is how God glorifies Himself through the grace that He gives to those who are and deserve nothing. The truly mature disciple, they understand this. And really, it's not even just the mature, but the immature as well. Even the youngest and most inexperienced of Jesus' disciples understand this. Because that's what's required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You, you remember the, the Beatitudes, right? Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount, which was this message about what was required to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the very first words of that message were, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, and if you recall, it's actually they only. That's the emphasis in the Greek, with all the Beatitudes. They only. The meek only shall inherit the earth. Jesus made it it clear that the only way into the kingdom was through humility, dependence, and faith. And in case you haven't noticed, that's pretty much the opposite of greatness. It's the exact opposite of the attitude that asks, who's the greatest? The one who comes into the kingdom comes in recognizing, 
that they're nothing. That's what gains them access to the kingdom. No one can earn their way in because all fall short. The only way in is to ask God to be gracious. And the only one who can do this is humble enough to realize their unworthiness. So even the most basic of Jesus' disciples are going to realize that they have no reason for boasting because that attitude is the prerequisite to to even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the most mature disciples, the ones who advance the furthest in the kingdom, the ones who are even able to do impossible things through the power of God, they're the ones who have only deepened in their understanding at this point. The mature disciple doesn't start humble, and then through some kind of progress in their faith become self-reliant as if they no longer needed God. That would be self-righteousness and sin. No, the most mature disciple starts humble, and then as they grow they realize that they actually weren't as humble as they should have been when they started. And then they become even more humble, more dependent. They rest more and more on God. A few years ago, I had a woman come up to me after I'd finished preaching a sermon at at another church, and she said to me, Pastor, I'm so concerned. She said, "I I don't understand it. I want to get rid of my sin, but I keep fighting it. And it seems like I struggle with my sin more now than I did 20 years ago. Am I saved? Am I a believer? You know what I I told the woman? I said to her, listen, I don't don't know your whole situation, but understand that it's normal to feel the struggle against this struggle against sin the further you grow in Christ. The fact that you feel the weight of sin more now than you did 20 years ago, that may well be a sign of your maturity in Christ, not your immaturity, because there were sins that you performed 20 years ago that you probably didn't even realize were sins. But as you've grown in the faith, as you study God's Word, you've become more and more aware of your sinfulness than you were when you were first saved. So if you're genuinely struggling against sin, then I wouldn't let that realization concern you. It should comfort you, if anything else. It should show you that you're growing as a disciple. You're more aware of your sinfulness, more aware of of how unworthy you are of God than you were even when you first came to Christ. That's how it works for the mature in Christ. Maturity, true maturity, it doesn't start, again, it doesn't doesn't result in this feeling of self-sufficiency. It isn't accomplished by self-reliance and self-satisfaction. Instead, it's accompanied by this growing sense of, of insufficiency, a growing realization of a person's need for God. Uh, That's the truth, right? I mean, we're all in desperate need of God, not only as sinners, but even as creatures. And so the more and more a person grows into the truth, the more and more they're going to sense their need, the more and more they're going to be humbled. And this means that this whole idea of boasting is actually completely antithetical to the kingdom of heaven. It isn't... It is entirely incompatible with the very concept of discipleship. To ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and to ask it in the way that these disciples are asking it. That's like asking, how many inches are in an hour? Or or how many dollars can fit into the square root of a football field? It's, It's nonsense. It's gibberish. There's no such thing as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, at least not in the way that... They're thinking about it. There's no one who's worthy of being esteemed. And the ones who ostensibly are the greatest, the most advanced of Jesus' disciples, they certainly don't think this way. This isn't a question that even crosses their minds. They neither believe that they are in any way great, nor are they interested in being perceived that way. So the disciples come to Jesus asking, what's two plus two? And the correct answer is really orange. They're so far off, they're not even asking the right question. They have it completely backwards. 
And so what Jesus does is He calls it forward this child. We don't know how old this child was from the wording in the Greek. It, it could have even been as young as an infant. He takes this child, He sets him in the middle of the disciples, and He says, Do you see this child? Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And just like that, He sets it all straight. Children were not honored or revered in the ancient Near East as they often are in our society. They were the lowest of society. And if you want to know why, it's because they're mooches. They're mooches. Children are too weak. They lack the education or the experience or the strength to offer any meaningful contribution to the advancement of a society or the survival of a family. And now don't get me wrong, I don't mean to say that they're not smart. I don't mean to say that some kids can't do remarkable things. They can. There are some incredibly gifted children out there. I've had students that I've known were more intelligent than me. They didn't have the data to go with it just yet, but I could see it. They were bright and they were gifted, and one day they were going to do something that was going to be really special. But until that day came, they were mooches. That's all I mean. As bright or gifted as a child may be, they don't support their parents, right? I mean, even if you take the really extreme cases, you, you know, child actors and the like, they're still dependent on their parents to, to manage their affairs and drive them to rehearsal and whatnot to make their living. The parents still enable them to do the things that earn money and support their family, so they're still dependent. They can't make themselves survive. They're unable to make themselves survive. And this would have been the same way, only more so, in a mostly agrarian, subsistence type of society. I mean, do you know what children were then? An investment. They were a retirement plan. And don't get me wrong, parents loved and cherished their children then just as much as they do now. In fact, I'd venture to say perhaps even more so because they understood the difficulty and rarity of life. I mean, forget about having children survive into adulthood. It was hard to even have them, period. So every single child was incredibly precious at this time in Israel. But in terms of worth, they had none. They didn't contribute anything, at least not immediately. One day they would as adults, and they'd be incredibly valuable then, but until that day came, they didn't really have anything to offer. They were, in a sense, useless, worthless. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but that was the perception, and if we're being honest, it's basically true. Children can't really contribute much of anything to their parents' well-being other than their admiration and love. They are entirely dependent, very weak, and because of this, they are not worthy of great esteem, great honor, admiration. And Jesus takes this child, he sets them in front of the disciples, and he says, Guys, don't you understand? You have to become like this to even enter into the kingdom. So what are you talking about greatness for? Don't you know how weak Every single one of you are. I mean, who's great in the kingdom of heaven and great in the sense that you mean it? Who is worthy of esteem and honor? Well, the answer is no one. Not a single disciple is great in the kingdom of heaven in the way that you mean it because every single one is like this child. They're completely dependent on their heavenly Father for their existence. No one should be sitting around thinking of one of my disciples Wow, they're amazing. No one should be impressed by you because none of you are impressive in and of yourselves. But God, oh, He is quite impressive. And He is good. And He is gracious to His children. And it's the one who realizes all of this and accepts His position as a child 
and with it surrenders his reason for boasting. This is the one who will enter into the kingdom. In other words, kids, if if I offended any of you just a minute ago by implying uh, that you're useless, uh, don't worry, uh, your parents are as well. In God's eyes, we're all in the same boat. Before God, we're all children, even the adults. None of us have anything to boast about. We're all needy. So this is the first correction that Jesus offers in this passage. The disciples ask him who's the greatest, and he answers, well, in the way that you're asking, no one. Don't you get it? None of you are great. You're all kind of worthless. And now that sounds devastating. And it is. To our pride, I think. I can't think of anything more humbling than what Jesus says right here to his disciples. I mean, do you know what you contribute to God? Nothing. His existence is in any way improved by your existence. He's God. He doesn't need any single one of you. He's not impressed. He doesn't admire you. In His eyes, you're nothing more than a little child. And in this sense, you're not great. You're nothing. But, and this is where I think the passage really turns, but... You may not, you, you are nothing in God's eyes, but you are loved. And not just some of you. Every single one of you who believes on Christ is cherished by God. You may not be valuable in the sense of what you contribute, but that doesn't mean that you're not important in God's eyes. It doesn't mean that you don't matter to Him. No, in that sense, every single one of Jesus' disciples is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the second correction that Jesus offers in his response. Everyone in the kingdom of heaven is valued and cherished by God. Everyone in the kingdom of heaven is valued and cherished by God. You see this in verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. This correction is expressed through three whoever statements, one in verse 4, another in verse 5, and then one in verse 6. In the first whoever statement, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now if you notice, that directly answers the disciples' question. They want to know who's the greatest, and Jesus tells them, this one is the greatest. But if you also notice, this status of greatest is not exactly exclusive. It's bestowed on whoever humbles himself like this child. So many are able to hold this title of greatest. It's open to whoever does this, not just one or two select disciples. And in fact, if you go back to what Jesus said in verse 4, where he said that it was necessary for one to humble himself like a child to even enter into the kingdom of heaven, then the implication is that everyone, every single one of his disciples is the greatest. None are better than the rest. They're all equally great. With the next two whoever statements, you see this greatness expressed and explained. In verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever receives one of these one such child in my name receives me. That's how great 
Each of his disciples are in God's eyes. They may not be valuable in the sense of their contribution. In terms of regard, though, they are on par with Christ himself. To receive one of them is to receive Jesus. Incidentally, this statement also explains where the disciples' worth comes from in God's eyes. They are precious. <coughs> Excuse me. They are precious not because of who they are or because of what they do, but because of who they are associated with. By faith they are bound with Christ, they are in him, and because of this God looks on them as if they possess the perfect righteousness of his son. This is Part of what is so amazing about the gospel. At the cross, Jesus exchanges our sin for his righteousness. And then when the Christian believes, they're adopted into God's family, treated as co-heirs of Jesus. That's where the disciples' worth comes from. It comes from their association with Christ. So therefore, every single Christian is regarded by God as great. They are treasured. They are important because all have received the same gift of righteousness. All have been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters by faith. This is why Jesus says that whoever receives one of these children receives him. It explains just how great each of his disciples is. And it explains where that greatness comes from. They're all regarded with the same concern, the same affection that the Father has for his Son. And, they were, and they're regarded in this way because they have been united with Christ by faith. It's on the basis of this concern and affection that Jesus says in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And to receive a disciple is to receive Jesus because through faith the disciple has been united with Christ and adopted into God's family as a son or daughter. If God the Father therefore loves each of Jesus' disciples with the same passion that He has for His Son, then what is going to happen to the person who causes even the least of these disciples to stumble? It isn't going to be pretty, right? I mean, God's going to come after them. He's going to be infuriated with the same degree of passion that any loving parent is going to have when someone messes with one of their kids. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? A parent's love for their child is unmatched. And again, that's not because of what the child gives the parent. It's not because of their worth in that sense. It's because that child is one of their children. They belong to them. That parent is responsible for them. They just love them. And it's not because of anything the child does. It's a selfless love. And it's a very passionate one. And so when a parent sees someone hurting one of their children, especially when they're little, when they can't protect or defend themselves, they'll often get enraged. Well, it's the same thing with God. He's the dad sitting on the porch, you know, polishing his shotgun when a boy comes over to take one of his daughters on a date saying, you know, y'all are going to be home by nine, right? He's like the mom who sees red when she witnesses another boy picking on her son on the playground. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 6. God has such a deep regard for the well-being of His children that if anyone causes one of them to stumble, well then drowning at the bottom of the ocean would be a better fate for them than that. They are that important to Him. He cares about them that much. Just so you know, that isn't just true of some of Jesus' disciples, but all of them. 
Again, whoever humbles himself like one of these children is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Every single one of God's children is loved in this way. The disciples want to know who's the greatest. And there's no way to answer this question than to say, well, all of you, all of you are. Again, parents, if you, if you have more than one child, you understand this. Imagine if one of your kids came to you and said, Mom, Dad, which one of us do you love the most? You can't answer that question. You'd say, well, all of you. There's no most. A parent's love isn't like a pie that's divided up and then distributed according to the greatness of each child. It's like you love one child with infinite love, or at least the the closest thing that a fallen creature can have to infinite love, and you love them that way just because they're your child. And then another child comes along, and there's infinite love for that child too. I actually remember being concerned about this when we found out we were going to have David. David is our second child. Daniel's our first. When we found out that we were going to have David, I, I was a little bit concerned because I already loved Daniel so much. And then when we found out that Emily was pregnant again, I started to, to worry, thinking, like, so am I going to love Daniel less now? Now that there's two kids, is, is there going to be less love to go around? Am I not going to be able to direct all this love that I have for him towards both of them? Is it going to be divided now? And of course, it couldn't have been further from the truth. David was born. And what I found out was that none of the love that I had for Daniel went away. It was just multiplied. That same love that I had for Daniel, that was added to the love that I now had for David. It was, all, it was awesome. And this is how it is with God. Every one of His disciples is important in his eyes. And that's not to say that there may be some who play a more strategic role in his mission based on the gifts that they've been given by God. You know, a George Whitfield or a Charles Spurgeon may be important to the kingdom in that sense, in terms of its advancement, but not in terms of love or value. All of God's children are precious to him. Do you understand? You know, Al Moeller, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, whoever your Christian hero may be, none of these men are more valued by God than the 15-year-old boy who's just come to Christ but is ensnared in lust. They're not important, more valued by God, than the 45-year-old mother overwhelmed by anxiety and fear, or the 75-year-old saint consumed with selfishness, materialism, and greed. This is why James implores the church in James 2 to show no partiality with one another in respect to money or other types of external things. We are all one in Christ, and God loves all His children equally. And isn't that great? God's love for us depends not at all on what we do for Him. That's what this means. Now again, there may be some children who are more or less pleasing to God because of their maturity in Christ, because of of their obedience to God's Word. But even these have the same value. They are loved just as much as even the most rebellious of His children. So you see, every single child in the kingdom of heaven is loved equally. Because all are loved on the basis of their relationship with Christ. So there's no greatest in this sense. They're all great. They all matter to God. And it's this concept that's going to serve as the foundation for the rest of Jesus' response here up through verse 20. If all of Jesus' disciples matter, then how should we treat 
one another? Jesus is going to answer that question as he continues to explain the implications of this concept through the first half of chapter 18. So keep this point in mind as we look at verses 7 to 14 next week. In the meantime, I want to very briefly give you a couple of points of application to take away with you from this passage. The first application is this. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, then here's the first step. Number one, think of yourself less. Think of yourself less. Greatness comes by thinking less of yourself. Now by this, I don't necessarily mean esteem yourself less in relation to other people, like you're some kind of lowly worthless bug in comparison to them. I don't even mean think of yourself less often, as if the problem is that you spend too much time thinking about yourself. Now, again, don't get me me wrong. I think we could probably all stand to consider others uh, to be more capable than we often give them credit for. And it's probably true that we spend too much time thinking about ourselves. But that's not the point here. My point here, rather, is that you need to esteem yourself less in your position before God. Become humble in your relationship with Him. Remember how weak and ignorant and needy you are as a creature? Remember how full of sin you are? How unworthy you are to enter into His presence? You know, the great men of the faith, the ones that God used to great effect, they didn't regard themselves as great. Nor did they ever think to try to draw attention to themselves. I mean, Moses wasn't overly impressed with himself, at least not when God called him, not later in life, right? And David didn't think that he was going to slay Goliath because he was a mighty warrior, did he? John the Baptist. I mean, he wasn't concerned with whether or not others knew that that there had been no one greater than him born of women, right, up until the time of Christ, was he? Absolutely not. I think it's fair to say that this is why God even determined to use these men so powerfully. They did not see themselves as great, and so they did not direct attention to themselves. They were the perfect vehicles for God's glory. So, if you want to be great, truly great, then humble yourself. Leave behind any hope for glory and admiration and become small in your own eyes. And this is what you and I have to fight for, by the way. I mean, really fight for in our sanctification. We we don't do this naturally. Our natural tendency is to make some sort of progress of our, in our faith and then give ourselves credit for it, boast in it, act like we become strong. And that's not maturity. Maturity doesn't come with an air of self-confidence. It comes with an increasing awareness of your weakness. Maturity doesn't come with an air of superiority. It comes with a realization that you are, in fact, entirely unremarkable. So if you want to become great in the kingdom of heaven, and if you want to become great in the way that God sees greatness... And think of yourself less. That's the first step. The second step is this. Think of others more. Again, I'm not saying think of them more often, though we could probably all stand to do that. And I'm not saying esteem them more, praise them, laud them, though, again, we can all benefit from respecting the giftedness of others. What I mean is value them more. Regard them as worthy, significant, important, and do this because of their position before God. And, and, and do this not only for believers, And and we should do this for believers, especially for believers who are bearers of the name, who are especially loved by God. But do this not only for believers, but even for unbelievers. Even unbelievers are deserving of your your respect if for no other reason than, than that they are image bearers of God. Now, they may be rebellious image bearers before they turn to Christ, but they are image bearers nonetheless. And so, they are important. They matter. 
And again, that's every single one, not just some. Every single person, simply by virtue of being human, is deserving of honor and respect as an image bearer of God. So grant that esteem, that respect, that honor to others, especially for believers, but for every human being as well. That's how maturity in Christ is demonstrated. That's how greatness in the kingdom is demonstrated. That's how you live a life that's pleasing to God, by honoring those who carry His name and showing them unconditional care and love. So, do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? This is how. Think of yourself less. Think of others more. The question that you should be asking yourself is not, how much better than everyone else am I? If you're asking that question, then you're already off track. You're already wrong. You're clueless about what the kingdom of heaven is really about. The question you should be asking yourself, if you want to be a mature Christian, is, am I aware of my weakness and need for grace? And do I esteem others? The ones who can answer yes to these questions, they're the ones who are truly great in God's eyes. Again, they're not great in the way that they can boast, but they are great in the sense that they are valued by God. And when they walk this way, they're also pleasing in His sight. He's delighted in them. Let's close today by asking that God would help us to have this attitude in ourselves. Let's pray.